morning we'll be in uh, Revelation chapter 13. I can almost guarantee you that, uh, that few or none of you have ever heard a sermon from this passage, and uh, so I, I do so with fear and trembling as we continue in our series in the book of Revelation. So I invite you now to stand with me in reading from uh, Revelation chapter 13. If you're able to stand, read from Revelation beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority." One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander His name and His dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. This is the Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we enter this time in Your Word, Your Word which is inerrant, infallible, which is here to guide our steps, we are called to open this book and to read it and to understand it, to live it out. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as we do so that Your Holy Spirit will be present, will be present in our midst, present in our lives, and at work in our lives. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I uh, heard the story of a, gre- of a greedy lawyer who was diagnosed with a terminal illness, but he was uh, determined to take some of his wealth with him to the afterlife. After a careful thought and consideration, he finally figured out how to take at least some of his money with him when he died. So he uh, instructed his wife to go to the bank and withdraw enough money to fill two pillowcases. He then uh, directed her to take the bags of money up to the attic and leave them directly above his bed. His plan? Well, when he passed away, he would reach out and grab the bags on his way up to heaven. Several weeks after the funeral, 
the deceased lawyer's wife was up in the attic cleaning and came upon the two forgotten pillowcases stuffed with cash. And she exclaimed to herself, I knew he should have put that money in the basement. You know, over uh, the next few weeks here, as we uh, continue through the book of Revelation, we will be talking about heaven and hell and uh, God's and Satan's work on this earth. You know, last week uh, we were in chapter 12, and uh, for those of you who might have missed it, I would encourage you to uh, go back and listen to it online, because it really does set the stage for the sermon here, but I think you'll still get plenty from the sermon this morning. Now back then we were introduced to the great dragon, who was uh, clearly described as the devil, and we saw how this dragon is allowed to oppress the people of God, even as God still limits the dragon. Well today here we'll be looking at chapter 13, and I'm also going to be having you turn to chapter 17, so if you want to turn there already and kind of keep a finger there, we're going to be looking at this beast. I hope what we'll see together is that the great dragon Satan doesn't just work in the spiritual realm. What we'll be seeing is that this dragon does his work through two representatives. This week we'll be looking at the first representative and next week we'll be looking at that one. In fact, the way that John presents this, many uh, biblical scholars have seen that what Satan does is to mimic God. Let me explain. See, we as Christians know that God is triune in nature. That is, that there is one God in substance, but that God is three in persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, for those of you taking notes, you'll find some uh, notes in the bulletin. Uh, Let me fill in a blank here on point number one on your outline. The Trinity is mimicked in the demonic realm. Evil is one, but also three. The great dragon, Satan, enacts his war on God's people through his two beasts or his two representatives on earth. Now the first beast that we see is this beast out of the sea. We'll see another beast, the beast from the earth, next week. And let me tell you right up front what I believe is important for us to see, and this is point two on your outline. The power of Satan works in the world through antichrists. That's plural, antichrists who have existed throughout history and exist today, continuing to work opposing God's people. Let me uh, give you some background information on this, and it's important biblical symbolism. You know, in the ancient world, the sea, this beast comes from the sea, right? The sea was the location of evil or judgment. We see this as a common symbolic theme throughout the Old Testament. But it's also in the New. Let me give you one important example of this that we find in the Gospels. 
Do you uh, remember the only negative miracle in the Gospels? Do you? It was uh, when Jesus curses the fig tree. Remember that? The fig tree is symbolic, by the way, for Israel in the Old Testament. And especially their religion. In fact, the entire miracle is quite symbolic. Jesus curses the fig tree, goes away. Then when he and his disciples return, they find the fig tree had withered. In between the cursing and finding it withered, Jesus says this in Mark 11:23. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Now let me see if I can explain this. And let me explain it by saying that it saddens me pretty deeply that many have misinterpreted this to mean that the challenges of our lives represented by the mountain can be defeated through prayer. That's unfortunately not the point at all. And I'm guessing that many of you have probably heard that at one time or another. It's not what the point of what Jesus is saying and why it has to be read in context, in context of the fig tree. See, what Jesus is doing is standing at that point in a particular spot near the Temple Mount and specifically promises that any, if anyone says to this mountain, and that's very specific in the Greek, this mountain, pointing out Mount Zion, which would have been the only visible mountain from his vantage point. See, what Jesus is doing in context is calling his disciples to trust in his promises, in his promises that a new world order, a new salvation order now exists, replacing the temple in fulfillment of God's promises that that would be occur. See, the coming of the Messiah also means fulfillment of all God had promised spiritually in the religion of the Israelites. See, the religion of Israel had become twisted. They had rejected their Messiah. And in turn, Jesus judges the temple and the temple worship, casting it into the sea of judgment and calling upon His followers through faith to cast that mountain, the temple mount, into the sea by faith. See, symbolically, they were now to place their full faith and trust in Jesus and that all that He had come to fulfill. To know that in Christ is where forgiveness of sins is now to be found, not at the temple. And that in Jesus is where you would meet God, not at the temple. And now in Revelation... Out of that sea, the place of judgment, comes this first beast. This agent of the great dragon. This beast from the sea is given more details, as I told you in chapter 17. So we will be flipping back and forth. This beast comes from the place of judgment. The place of evil. And he's described as having ten horns and seven heads. Well, in chapter 17, and feel free to turn there with me, read along, we find a woman. A woman on this beast. 
And this woman is quite unlike the first woman that we saw back in chapter 12. See, in last week we saw, and you might remember, that the, that woman represented the people of God, both Old Covenant and New Covenant. But this woman is described as Babylon. So let me read from chapter 17 here. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abomination of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. See, the picture that we get here of this beast and the woman is a parody of the Lamb of God. You see, the Lamb of God is described as the one who was and is and is to come. But the beast is described as the one who was, now is not, and is to come. The satanically empowered power, uh, empowered power receives a fatal wound, as is described there in Revelation 13. So, when you receive a fatal wound, your now is not, but then returns, and then is to come. See, it's language that describes a historical cycle. This power receives the stroke of death, a fatal wound, nevertheless returns. So let's pause a moment and see if we can get a grasp of all this imagery together. We can, uh, let's begin by talking about a fatal wound. You can talk about a wound, you can talk about a wound that was healed, and you can talk about a fatal wound, but you can't really talk about a fatal wound that has been healed. See, this on the surface doesn't make sense. But this is how this beast can be referred to as the one who was, now is not, and is to come. The beast comes, attacks, receives a fatal wound, is healed, then comes back again. See, the language and description of this beast is being drawn from Daniel chapter 7, where we see the beasts there that were the nations that opposed and held sway over God's people. And what John is doing is uh, pointing back to those beasts of Daniel 7 that are in his prophecy, but then paint a picture of one beast who is an amalgam of all four beasts. So let me see if I can boil all this down to a simple point, and it's point three on your outline. Each nation from the time of Christ onward will be an amalgam of the different kinds of evils that we have seen throughout all previous evil nations. 
In other words, the beast is still here. The beast recurs throughout history. He was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was Nero. See, this beast, by the way, uh, was the entire Roman institution that opposed the Christian church in John's day. Let me, see, let me see if I can explain this. How do we know that? Well, see, the woman, the harlot sitting on the seven hills in chapter 17 is literarily being equated with the seven hills, which was a common description of Rome. In fact, for people of John's day, this cannot be anything other than Rome. In fact, many in church history have seen such a dramatic picture of Rome pointed to here that they concluded that this pointed to certain popes as the ultimate representation of this evil. Because the Roman Catholic Church, of course, is centered in Rome. See, let me suggest that I I think they're wrong and right to a certain degree. For instance, Pope Innocent III, who wasn't just a, a religious leader in the 12th century, but also an evil political tyrant, is a representation, is represented by this beast. Let me give you an example of his evil. In the year 1198, he issued a papal bull declaring anyone, and here's a quote, anyone who attempts to construe a personal view of God which conflicts with the church dogma must be burned at the stake without pity. And he killed and oppressed true believers. So, uh, so I think they're right, that there have been popes who filled, fulfilled the role of antichrists in the role of this first beast. And there very well could be more in the future. But they're wrong to merely limit this to popes, to just leaders in Rome. For instance, Mao Zedong fulfills this role. Hitler was an antichrist in the mode of this first beast. See, these antichrists have arisen in many areas of the world and then are fatally wounded only to arise again in the same place or somewhere else. In John's time, there wasn't empire-wide persecution. There was persecution going on in certain places, sometimes very severe but limited in scope. In other words, it was, now is not, and will be again. See, the nature of the opposition to the church was often political in nature. And this continues to be true. In Iran, there is severe persecution in the church going on today, which flares up from at different times. This is true in Egypt as well, as some of my family has experienced from time to time. In John's first letter, he writes in chapter 2, verse 18, Dear children, this is the last hour, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know It is the last hour. See, the arrival of Christ means the arrival of antichrists. There will be a final antichrist, but until then there will be antichrists. There were antichrists in John's time. There are antichrists in our time, and there will be more antichrists to come. Many who try to forecast a particular final antichrist from the descriptions here, miss the main point. See, John's point is simple. 
whenever it seems that some evil nation or national leader or other antichrist that opposes the building of the kingdom of Christ is defeated or dies, that's not the end of it. Antichrists keep coming back. There will inevitably be another wave. It will continue. Today we're seeing national politicians and leaders arising in our own nation who are actively opposing Christ's church. We should never be surprised by this. And we should be very careful in using political power to defeat this. Because the only weapon we have, as we're told consistently throughout the New Testament and explicitly in the last chapter, is the Word of God and our testimony. Our testimony to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To His saving work in our own lives. See, our weapons are not of this world. And we should never be surprised when evil revives and returns. Assyria, Babylon, Rome, World War II Germany, these evil nations finally received mighty death blows from the very hand of God, but that's not the end. Antichrists arise again. In 13.4, we read, people worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Who can fight against the state? Some might put it. Who can defeat such powerful nations, such powerful armies, powerful dictators, or secular governments? Give up. Conform. Who can stand? Who can fight the totalitarian Marxist states? Who can fight against these ruthless Islamic states that torture, kill, behead any who oppose them, especially Christians? How about our own nation, our own culture today? We worship self and things and success and money and sports and media personalities. We even worship our own personal comforts, sometimes at any expense. Who can stand against this beast? How about the beast of secularism and cultural atheism? Who can stand against the power of Darwinian evolution? It has in many ways become the most powerful and influential beast of the Western secular world today. Did you know that a recently published study indicates that a significant percentage of young people who grow up in evangelical churches and are even active in their church and in their youth groups lose their faith during their college years when they are deeply taught Darwinian evolution? Let me make sure you understand the major point here. Behind every philosophy that opposes God, some even masquerading as science, is the evil of the dragon and his beasts. See, the power of Satan expresses itself in antichrists, in concrete historical opposition to God's people. There's another important aspect of these antichrists, and this is point four on your outline. Antichrist is full of blasphemy. See, we're told in the description of the beast of the sea in verse 1 
that on each head was a blasphemous name. Roman emperors took divine names for themselves. Augustus was proclaimed God in his lifetime. On the death of most emperors, the Roman Senate would proclaim them divine. Domitian, who was, uh, who was likely the emperor at the time of John's writing of this book, took on the title of Dominus et Deus Nostra, our Lord and God. See, but this isn't limited to just Roman emperors. Look at verse 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander His name and His dwelling place and those who live in heaven. See, we saw this number 42 months before, the whole, which re- represented the whole period of time when, uh, during this time between His first coming and His second coming when God's people would experience opposition. See, the idea of blaspheming God is in the very nature of Antichrist. This idea of a blaspheming or slandering God's name has to do with anything that one can do to lower God to a human or even a lesser level. Anything that lowers God. For example, many in our culture have decided that Christians are haters and have proclaimed our God a hater. This is just another way of blaspheming and slandering God. You know, I, uh, I remember a conversation I once had with my Old Testament professor, Dr. Daniel Carroll. We were talking about the rise and fall of some of the major empires throughout history, speaking specifically at one point about the fall of the Soviet superpower and how it included God's just condemnation. But then he asked me this question, which I've never forgotten. How much longer before America is judged and falls? See, God holds us account, both individually and as nations. And the beast will die. And the beast will come back. See, we're in this 42 months, this three and a half year period, and there will be Antichrist after Antichrist. And as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, Satan, the great dragon, the beast, works through political powers and authorities. They are his domain. For many of us, the idea of a constant struggle and battle is a daunting one. We don't like it. We want peace. Peace in the the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. And the interpretation I'm giving you of Revelation, while, while it's been the majority view throughout Christian history, is not one that we tend to like in our Western world. We want to go to end-time conferences and be titillated with the idea that there is one Antichrist who is coming in some vague time in the future that should have nothing to do with us. We want to support the nation of Israel as, as long as all those issues have to do with them and not us. 
We like the idea of a rapture that takes us away from any personal serious struggles and suffering. I have many pastoral friends that believe this. But sadly, if all we do is relegate all this to some distant future that has nothing to do with us, then we will miss the very serious message that God is giving today and has been giving throughout church history. A message that affects our daily lives. See, what we don't like to hear is what has been so very clear to much of the church throughout the last couple of thousand years. That there is a spiritual struggle that we are called upon to be involved in. And that in every nation, Satan is working through the political and religious realms. The religious part we'll see next week. See, the modern and postmodern atheistic and agnostic philosophies that push us to believe that one can divide the sacred from the secular, that tells us that religious views must be relegated to our private and personal realm at home, But in the public square, atheism and agnosticism must rule. That's only another tool in Satan's toolbox to oppose the building of Christ's kingdom and to assail the church in His wrath, as we saw last week. And we must be equipped and must equip our young people to understand these tools so that they might win the spiritual battle for the mind. Otherwise, we are going to continue to be susceptible to the attacks of Satan. Look with me again at uh, verses 7 and 8 in this uh, chapter. We're told that it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So here we're, uh, we're given a consistent pattern throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. What you were told is that you don't get multiple options in this world. You're either written in the Lamb's book of life, and are pursuing intimate relationship and discipleship with the Lamb, or you are under the power of the great dragon and his beasts. There isn't a third or fourth option. And this is point five on your outline. You are either worshiping the true God, the triune God of Christianity, or you are de facto worshiping the beast and under his power. Everyone except those in the Lamb's book of life. See, much of the world today is being dominated by Antichrist. Even in a democracy, eventually Antichrist takes root. Laws are passed that are so egregious, so immoral, that Christians find themselves in opposition or in the position of being oppressed and manipulated to sacrifice their convictions. As faithful Christians, we will regularly find ourselves in tension on one level or another with the forces of Satan and his great agent from the sea who's embodied in Antichrist in the powers and rulers of this world. While there will be those rare times 
when the forces of Antichrist are not now, and America in decades past has enjoyed such times. The reality is that opposition from Antichrist is a common one to us and will be to the very end of the age. And the beast will be in the majority, if you will. He commands wide allegiance. Do you see it here? The beast is influential and popular. And even Christians will feel pressured to give their allegiance to antichrists of this world. See, the text is clear. Antichrist, if given enough power, causes great suffering among those people. Look at verse 7. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All we have to do is ask our Christian brothers and sisters in the Sudan who continue to suffer extreme persecution and often death from Antichrist. Or consider the plight of our brothers and sisters in North Korea. Everything about the beast, the Antichrist, is the opposition of the king that we serve. See, our king is our creator. He formed us in our mother's womb, but he is the one who was persecuted, suffered, and died in our place. We follow the lamb who was slain. He is our model. And he is our dynamic. He is the power within us. He is the one who strengthens us for the path we must follow. And instead of brutalizing us to follow Him like the beast does, He woos us in His sacrificial love. The one who actually deserves our total allegiance, for He is the one who created us. But He doesn't exert that power. Instead, He goes to the cross and is slain in our place and woos us in His love. There's a final major point that I'd like to highlight, and it comes in verse 10. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. See, in the face of the truths and realities that we live in a time where many nations and groups are being led by the embodiment of Antichrist. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on our parts. Let me see if I can explain this. We endure, which in the Greek doesn't simply mean grit your teeth and bear it, but it means being faithful, faithful to the Great Commission, being faithful to God's calling to make disciples by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb, as we saw last week. Just like the Allies had to endure the rage of Hitler after they landed at Normandy, endure the deaths and suffering until the very end, even as we saw last week. See, we have to stop living as our secular world would have us believe. Living our lives, of, lives of his, as if God does not exist, with maybe just a little Christianity on the side. See, you and I must absolutely refuse to bow to the beast of secularism, the antichrist of our secular society, which pushes us, our faith to the periphery of life. Either Jesus is Lord, or the beast is.
This calls for endurance and faithfulness. You know, um, young uh, William Wilberforce was discouraged one night in the early 1790s after another defeat in his 10-year battle against the slave trade in England. He had become tired and frustrated. He opened his Bible and began to leaf through it. A small piece of paper fell out and fluttered to the floor. It was a letter written by John Wesley shortly before his death. Wilberforce took it out and read it again. Let me uh, read a quote to you. Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery. Yeah, you say that fast a couple times. Which is the scandal of religion, the scandal of England, and the scandal of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of His might. See, this is the same message for us today. How will you go on? You'll go on in the name of God and in the power of His might. Remembering our vision. Our vision given to us here at Parkway of loving people to real life in Jesus. It really is the only real life. Let's pray together. Gracious God, the truth is, is that our world is filled with antichrists today. National leaders, political philosophies that oppose the building of your kingdom in this world. Some will receive a fatal death blow, but then they return again. This is the world in which we live. It is the world that we live in for the for these 42 months, this time of exile, as we await Your return, Lord Jesus. This is what we need to expect. And so we need to always, always be living a life that is diligent. Diligent to remember that our enemies, our war is not against flesh and blood but the powers and principalities, the rulers of this world that are empowered by this beast, this beast of Antichrist, where Satan is allowed to do his work. And so, Lord, we pray, which is our major tool in this war, we pray, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit will empower us for the calling that You have placed upon us, that we will lift each other in prayer regularly, that we will lift our leaders in prayer, our church leaders. Lord, we pray for them. We ask for Your empowerment, Your, 
your boldness in their life as they continue to live faithfully following your calling. And Lord, especially we pray for one another, asking for your boldness and your strength in our lives that we might live out the calling that you have placed upon us in this world that is so often dominated by the spirit of Antichrist, as Antichrists are at work in this world. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone, but that indeed you have called us and set us apart and empowered us by your Holy Spirit to live out the calling that you have placed upon us. And so we pray, Lord, today that you will make us ever diligent, ever diligent to follow you, to live out in faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.